0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz-Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary, including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically. But there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors and luminaries from the world of art and culture. There has never been a better time than now for women working in art, fashion and design. But female artists, gallerists, and collectors have always shaped taste and found ways of expressing themselves and championing the work of others. In this episode, originally recorded as a live event, Will Gompertz was joined at Sotheby's in London by jewellery designer Paloma Picasso, art critic and 2024 Istanbul Biennale curator Ivona Blaswick, and Sotheby's Emma Baker for a conversation about the past, present, and future of female creativity. Here's Will with more.
2: I'm Will Gomblitz. So, um, without further ado, let's meet our illustrious panel. Emma, who is Head of the Evening Sales on the contemporary side here at Southampton. Next to is Ivana Blaswick, who for over 20 years was the inspirational director of the Whitechapel Gallery. Um, and then before that, I just missed her, unfortunately, was at the Tate, where she um, oversaw the, one of the great initiatives of the 21st century which was the turbine hall commission which was initially of course by louise bourgeois uh, and then uh, to my left here i'm delighted to say uh, paloma picasso uh, paloma obviously is a world-renowned designer of jewelry but she's also uh i guess the daughter of two very famous artists Gillo, her mother and a chat called pablo picasso who was her dad um <laughs> we'll talk a bit about that of course uh in a minute and i thought i'd just structure the conversation because i'm a simple soul a sort of a, a, bit, a, bit, a bit about now, a bit about then, and a bit about how women have shaped art and the art world as, as we know it. So let's start with now, Paloma, and just a sense f- from you about how now is different to then.
3: Well, for me, it's a bit less different than to most people because having a mother who was, who was a painter and uh, who showed me the way, you know, showed me that there's no reason for a woman not to be in that world and not to be at the top of that world. And actually, I remember when I was about 13 years old, people started talking about women's liberation. And I thought, what are they talking about? What do they want? Of course, I had in front of my eyes what people, uh, and women especially, were hoping for. So I, I was a bit ahead of my time, thanks to my mother.
2: So, uh, Ivana, I, I, you, I suspect you'll give a slightly different answer, um, because it strikes me that then, in many ways, is very, now is very different to then, even in the last 20 years, I'd say. Uh, and you are in a very interesting position currently, because you've taken a job in Saudi Arabia, a country not necessarily famous for um, its liberal attitudes towards women, And you feel in that role to a certain extent you're carrying on the work you did at Tate and then at the Whitechapel. Tell us a bit about what you're doing and what you're hoping to achieve.
0: I was invited to take on something of a kind of utopian project, I would say, in a region which has been in uh, total isolation, very very repressive kind of social uh, mores there. And someone told me that he's an expert in Islamicism and. Uh, but he's from Britain. And he was invited there in 2004 and was asked to circumnavigate Medina because they wouldn't let in a Christian. That was 2004. So over the last few years, there's been a a really radical change, I would say, in all sorts of aspects of the society in this kingdom, which has been uh, very, very removed from the world in many ways. And a uh, part of that is an embrace of culture. And that embrace of culture is because there's a recognition that culture can transform society. Now I'm a lifelong feminist. One of my proudest moments was founding the Max Mara art prize for women at the Whitechapel gallery in 2007 with Luigi Marimotti, the chief executive of Max Mara. And we're very proud of that prize because uh, over the years we've, been able to support emerging female artists and bring them onto the world stage. So, knowing that was my background, I, I was interested to, to be invited. And when I came, I said, Well, I'll be looking in every aspect for gender parity, uh, not only in the kind of artists that we're commissioning, but also in my colleagues. And they said, We agree. So, I was pushing at an open door. And I have three areas that we're all working with a lot of young Saudi colleagues. Uh, One of the interesting things about the region is that it has a very, very young population. 70% are under the age of 30. So everything is there. The potential is there. The liberalization is happening quite rapidly, but it's evolution, not revolution. And we're working in an astonishingly beautiful place called Al Ula, which is just south of Petra in Jordan. It's a continuation of the great Nabataean kingdom of 500 BCE. Ravishingly beautiful. I have to say I'm a desert groupie, uh, but I've never been to a place quite as beautiful as this. And in this area called Al Ula, we are commissioning land art. We have 65 square kilometers dedicated to these land art commissions. Uh, We're building a museum and we're building several collections. So it's incredibly exciting. And for young people, it's transformative on every level, Uh, not only in their freedoms, uh, basically the dissolution of what was essentially gender apartheid, and in the potential of what art and culture can do for them.
2: Um, I'm going to ask you the same question, just about the nowness, because there's definitely a nowness, you know, and and what's about particularly the art of women but also uh, the art of um, people of color coming to the forefront who have hitherto been suppressed quite clearly but just because of the subject let's let's focus on, on female artists and it seems extraordinary I mean it's fantastic I mean Katie Hassel who's a wonderful person wrote this extraordinary book and a terrific book called uh, the story of art without men which is sort of a, a riff on Gombrich's story of art but Taking the men out and, and, and putting in um, women instead, and then Jennifer Higgy and Palette in the Mirror—it uh, just seems weird, doesn't it? That in 2022 or 2023, that these are sort of seen as revolutionary publications. Yeah, I mean, this isn't—it's not a secret, right? No. So, so what's what's been happening, and why is it changing now? I
4: feel like it's been bubbling away for quite a few years now, especially since I've been um, at Sotheby's. It's—I've noticed that. Over the last decade, there's been a real sort of energy and a real momentum towards shining a spotlight on female artists, women, creativity and just the underrepresentation. And there has been, you know, the question of sort of the price gap between men and women artists and, and what, what's happening now. But um, yeah, I, I think that's definitely something that is taking, taking on momentum or have taken on huge momentum. And I think as these things have been in the project in the pipeline for some time, you know, these books, Katie's book, Jennifer, Jennifer's books and these amazing exhibitions, like they take years to plan, you know, so I feel like they're coming together and they're coming out as a result of, of years of work and years of thought behind it. And yeah, we're seeing sort of the fruits of that now. Uh, and it's exciting.
2: Do you think it's a moment or do you think it's a, a, a step change?
4: I hope not. Like it's definitely a trend that should be here to stay for sure. It should be a, a step change. Um, I think there's always going to be a disparity between sort of the more historical male artists and sort of their peers of the time, and we could talk about that a bit later as well. But like, yeah, I think I think it's it's, an, it's a really wonderful time to be talking about it now.
2: Well, Paloma, that's a very good cue to talk about historical male artists <laughs> and their peers at the time, which captures both your your mother and your your father. So let's spin back. I mean, your mother now is 102, I think One, 101. Two. 101 still uh, born in 1921 and uh, when she was 20 well, she in 1943 she she met your dad he was in his 60s and they had this 10 11 year relationship of which you are the product um, and your brother and and it was obviously you know it's talked a lot about the relationship but let's talk a little bit about the art and what that meant specifically for your mother, because the, the you know the, the argument has often been made that her art was you know in a way secondary, and she was overwhelmed by Picasso. But I don't think that's necessarily the truth. What's your recollection, both growing up with with both around you, but and then latterly, just talking to your mother about that relationship and how and the impact it had on her her art. Well, uh, I think she always was. I mean, of
3: course, there's always a permeability with two artists live together. Mm. But she tried maybe more than him not to be influenced by him, whereas maybe he was influenced by her. Here's you. Yeah, this is me. This is a great painting. It's a fabulous painting, yeah. And Do you remember? I remember actually uh, because I can't remember how I got the plumes, the, the ostrich plumes. And then for some reason, another sound, it should wear them. And I only played guitar for like two, three months. Uh, I was not good <laughs>
2: so
3: at least I'm glad there's some proof that I did play guitar
2: yeah forever you'll look cool forever look yeah. Right. yeah
3: and it's a beautiful painting I mean I think it's a fabulous painting there's one funny story that I can say about this painting too is that actually I was the underbidder I didn't get the painting. <laughs> but so I was very it was the first time that I was bidding on something and I was very nervous so So finally, I let go and the sale goes to somebody else. And then I call her. And so, and I say, you know, this is so exciting. The painting went for over a million and blah, blah. And so my mother said, what, should I worry that, you know, should I care that somebody's paying more than a million for it? I mean, I value my own work by myself. I don't need to have, you know, dollar signs on it.
2: And then the next painting you did buy. (laughs) <laughs> my yeah, so tell tell, later. tell, tell us a little bit about this painting. So this one
3: was done in London actually. She did live in London for about five years and uh, so it was the 60s, fashionable, uh, eccentric and um, that's a really nice painting. So then you get the first one but I got God, please.
2: And again, do you remember... Posing for it? Yes. So
3: I actually usually didn't pose,
2: ah. either from my father or my mother. Okay. and. I mean, it's quite quite strange, isn't it, that both your father and your mother are depicting you? Yes. Did you have a favorite?
3: <laughs> oh, there was one painting which I actually got, uh, which had an impression on me when I was a child, which was it's a portrait of me on a red carpet with black dots, and it's a very big painting. And uh, and so through my life, the red and black have been my colors, and I've always wondered, wasn't because of the carpet?
2: Is this, is this a painting by your mum or your dad? Oh, my father. Ah, Ivona, let's just go back. Um, let's go back to, I guess, the 1950s. And just thinking about that show you've, you've put on at the Whitechapel, which is looking at the abstract expressionists, so famous for being macho in a way. That's, that's a narrative we've heard. All downtown, all doing their thing. And you're presenting a different story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, so in the late 1940s, partly because there were a lot of emigrants in New York, there was this surge of... A purely abstract form of painting abstract and gestural and it came to be known as action painting and at the time of its genesis i would say there were almost equal numbers of men and women involved in this new experimental kind of painting and if you remember of course they'd just come out of the second world war which had affected everybody it was a world war so some of the artists that we have included come from china from korea from uh poland i mean literally all over the world all of them had in some way been impacted by war Uh, a japanese artist who was in an internment camp in america so coming out of that horror the chaos the darkness the trauma of that this kind of painting offered a new horizon a new tomorrow there was the huge influence of dance people like martha graham for example of performance um, and also of existentialism jean-paul sartre was incredibly fashionable and there is a story that he came to new york and gave this talk which got a standing ovation despite the fact he was speaking in his native french and no one understood him no one actually spoke french but there we are it was uh that was the prevailing philosophy of the time and so this expression of self became known as abstract expressionism and yet so these women like Lee Krasner, Helen Frankenthaler, a huge number of different practitioners, Betty Parsons, here's the Krasner, Elaine de Kooning, and others were, they had galleries, they had exhibitions, they had museum shows. And yet, by 1970, in their own lifetimes, as they were still hugely active, they disappeared. Mm. It's absolutely staggering and one example of that is a book published by irving sandler who was a kind of gallerist critic and it's called the triumph of american art the story of abstract expressionism and in that thick volume there is not one single female artist except as a footnote elaine de kooning appears on a tiny tiny nine point uh, footnote and it says elaine de kooning wife of willem de kooning brackets also, a painter. <laughs> Who knew? So, this happened not just in New York and it happened globally because it was a global phenomenon. So, Action Gesture Paint, our exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery, um, tells a different story. And I can tell you there is no special pleading. Every one of these artists had a unique voice, was s- expressing something very distinct, according also to locale. We have a wonderful artist called Leah Nichol, who's based in Israel. We have another artist who comes from Lebanon. It really is a global story, and yet it's distinctive. So what is it that happened for all these women? Why was it that curators, people like me, critics, and collectors abandoned them? And that is the big conundrum. I think there's a PhD to be written there.
2: But let's be
0: absolutely
2: clear about this, Ivana because there was that big Krasner show, wasn't it, at the Barbican a couple of years ago, which was, again, sort of enlightening. What what a career, what what an artist. So to be absolutely clear, from your point of view, that the female abstract expressionists, the the artists you've just been speaking about, are at exactly the same level, or maybe even a smidgen above.
0: Well, one or two actually pipped those male artists at the post. So uh, Janet Sobel, for example, started drip painting Uh, several years before Pollock so you know that that is interesting is that the formal experimentation that they were doing preceded some of the artists who had become celebrated subsequently and and also the male artists I think who were their contemporaries were it was mutually supportive Uh, I mean obviously it was it was a much more chauvinist era but it wasn't the artists who sunk them it was people like me I think I mean it must have been the, the gatekeepers of the art world who decided to erase uh, women's contribution. The thing is, I don't even think they decided, they just did. That, that's what's
3: frightening in a way. It's that there was no diktat to say, let's forget them, it just happened.
2: Well, Emma, let's, let's look at um, a couple of female tastemakers. Um, one who was around the time the Abstract expressionists one who was earlier who was um, obviously very close to your father so Gertrude um, Steen and Peggy Guggenheim two very different characters both American um, Peggy Guggenheim has that, that wonderful quote isn't she so, cause she's, and she loved three things money, art and men yeah. <laughs> uh, and when she was you knew her right? oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and when she was asked uh, how many um, husbands she'd had she said mine or other people's? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she was a lot of fun so actually just let's start before we come to emma just just what was she what 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 was she like peggy uh,
3: so she was very out you know outgoing as you can see yeah um and it was quite fascinating i mean i saw her mostly when i went to venice and went to her her house and uh and then she had this private gondola so we would go on our gondola and go and visit some old church and there and um and then, of course, just walking through the house was with Nowadays, it's a museum.
2: So let's just talk about these two women, both, you know, remarkable in their own ways, both forging a collection right at the sort of the forefront of what's happening in art. So here we have two magnificent women putting together collections, but they're part of the story of not collecting female artists right
4: yeah exactly and i think there are there are a number of really important female tastemakers and collectors throughout the 20th century who have these really key positions in shaping the cultural landscape that we see today like gertrude stein her collection was incredible um and the the salons that she had were just so instrumental i think in in sort of in paris at the time in the avant-garde and obviously peggy guggenheim huge huge influence amazing collection just incredible foresight in terms of who she collected but then it's not just those two there are so many women so helen frick who put together her family collection and made that a public museum the three founders of the museum of modern art were women like you know that if you go through history you the just whitney. find and the whitney exactly like these incredible women throughout the 20th century really putting a stamp and really putting sort of creating and forging the actual landscape that we see today, which is incredible.
2: It is, Ivana, incredible, but it does beg the question, it begs your question, why these, they were living at a time when there were good female artists, great female artists, why were they ignored? Yeah, why?
0: Uh, I mean, we know that in, in many countries after the Second World War, there was a drive to having recruited women into the workplace, into factories and industry they were driven back out again, because there was a fear that men wouldn't have jobs. And so the whole myth of the suburban housewife grew up, that this was what we should all aspire to. You know, there are the big sociopolitical forces going on here. It's interesting that one key figure, Betty Parsons, she was both a great painter and a gallerist. So, you know, there were people within the infrastructure who wanted to to make that kind of support. Uh, but I think we have to look at bigger social trends, at economies, at also the rise perhaps in the 1980s of this s- super-powered capitalist um, economy, which was based on masters of the universe, you know, the whole rhetoric around money. And that that and development was equated with machismo, you know, so there are all sorts of strange aspects of our culture if we stand back and look at it historically which all feature in feed into this and what happened i think was by the 1970s women feminists then started finding all the all the tributaries of work from which they weren't excluded photography performance uh, video art all of these different fields where they were pioneers and it hadn't been territory that was preclaimed by by men. So, what we see is another kind of avant-garde in the 70s of artists like Carolee Schneeman, or um, I mean, so many who really take on a different methodology because the doors have shut on all these other traditional canonical forms like painting and sculpture.
3: I think it's it's really interesting how you know things swing back and forth. And uh, the minute we advance, then we realize that we're losing ground again. And so, But I think this new movement, I, I think, is really here to stay. I really believe that.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not as if people haven't been knocking at the door. I mean, you think that the gorilla Girls have been around a long time. Linda locklin wrote that essay, Why are There are No Great Women Artists, what, in 69? Uh, I 70s, I think, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 70s. You know... Um, and so it's, it, you know, it's not a surprise, Oh hello guys, you know, there are some females in the room as well. And, and yet we got to a period in, in, you know, just 20 years ago where most collections, most major museums were just showing male artists time and time and time again with the occasional anomaly. And then when it came to the permanent connections, it was almost entirely male and almost entirely white. So, so what has changed, Emma? Why now? Because it does feel like a moment, it does feel like a reckoning. It does feel like we're not going to go back again.
4: I think the culture we live in now is just, you know, the new generation, Generation Z, they're just very sort of centred on these issues, you know, they're important issues, issues of gender, issues of race, equality. These are the issues of our time. And I think that's why it feels like there is a reckoning, because there are voices that should be heard. and And they're powerful voices. And I think now is the time for, for us to be really questioning these parts of our history where, or generally history, where women have gone unheard and work has gone unseen.
2: Paloma, I just wanted to ask you a question about living in that household and growing up in that household with two artists. Right. Mm-hmm. What, what, was it, what was it like? Did you realise you were in an extraordinary position? Yes, I mean, I, I could
3: not, not realise. But my father was, uh, would allow me, I was a very quiet little child, so my father would allow me to stay next to him where he painted. And he would give me paper and pencils so that I could do my own things on my own right. But my mother, who was maybe thinking more of our education, and she thought Claude and I would end up hating art. She was obsessed with that because she, so, you know every, everybody's always talking to them about becoming painters when they grow up and all of this. So my mother would actually close the door on her studio which was inside the house but she didn't know for years I would go on the balcony and look through the window for hours watching her paint and when I told her she was so moved and taken aback.
2: Uh, and did you, did you Was your father more uh, enthusiastic about you becoming an artist?
3: Um, I don't think we really Just talked it. about it in this way but when I was I think something like nine or ten years old Uh, I decided I would make copies of things that were at home. So I copied a Picasso, a Matisse, and a Tom and Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) And so I made those three drawings and then I went up to my father and said, so what do you think of this? And he said, oh, I'm not gonna tell you. It's up to you to know whether it's good or not. I'm not gonna tell you whether it's good or not. You have to find those answer on your own. Mm -hmm. So that is a very grown up answer.
2: Yeah, Um, and what was your reply?
3: There was nothing I could reply. I just had to keep on doing, you know, fake Picassos. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's just extraordinary that you should be ripping off your dad. That's just that's just um, that's just uh, terrific. Um Yvonne, I think you were there's a couple of artists you were gonna talk about from uh, from the work you're doing.
0: Yes. Um a Saudi artist called Manal Aldawan, and she is one of five artists that we're commissioning to make land art in Alula. Her work will be alongside Agnes Dennys, Michael Heitzer, who's just opened the largest sculpture in the world, uh, Ahmed Mata, who's also a Saudi artist, and James Terrell. I don't know if you know his work, but I think he has promised. Um, so what is very interesting, I think, is to have the same commitment and level of, of investment in realising a work by arising and very vocal Saudi feminist artist as someone like Terrell, who's a world famous and, you know, in his, now in his 80s. And she's someone who, if you look at her work, she's very much drawing on a vernacular, which is almost disappearing in the Gulf, actually. And as we go to places like the United Arab Emirates and so forth, you see these massive developments, great, you know, towers of steel and glass rising everywhere. And what Manala's doing, I think, is going back to a time when materiality, weaving, clay, all of these handmade crafts, she's, she's kind of retrieving them, I think, but also looking at the role of women within them. I think going back to what you were saying about the auction house, about the changing environment, I think what we always need to remember is that it's an ecosystem and we have to have parity at every stage of that ecosystem. So it's Uh, encouraging girls to take up art at school and to go to art school. It's making it easier for them to get studio space, to live and work, to be able to do their work through perhaps residencies and so forth. It's then you need the laboratory spaces where artists test things out. You also need the the commercial side of things. You do. Artists need to eat and pay the rent. And it helps to have a gallery, excuse me. And for many years, you'd look at gallery lists and there'd be no women among any of the stables. And that has really changed oh, dramatically. Usually, yeah. Um, and it's exciting to see it, you know, at across all the great galleries that we have in London, around the world, at last we're seeing almost equal numbers of men and women totally in their lists. And then we also have to see women in the museums. We have to see them in the public realm in Kunsthalle spaces like the Serpentine or like Whitechapel Gallery, but at Tate. And Tate actually has been very, very, I think, really uh, fantastic over the last two decades in addressing that imbalance.
2: Yeah, a lot of that's with Francis, isn't it? Um, Paloma, we have you here. You are an artist in your own right. You're a designer. Uh, we have some images of the work you've created. Could you just talk us through some of your, some of your pieces?
3: I guess because I'm the daughter of two painters colors are extremely important for me and here in the design you can see how the color um, the play with color is key to my jewelry and um, because I like color I like a lot of it so I like big stones which is a bit of a problem sometimes because of course it costs a lot more than the small ones <laughs> <laughs> But, um, so when I design, I of course, don't think of the value of the stones. I mean, what I think is, you know, the impact of the shape and the, the colors and how they interplay
0: together.
2: Is it, is when you are designing, and you design a lot for Tiffany, when you are designing, is there anything from your, either your mother's or your father's process that you have learned, that you've adopted in your own creative process?
3: Well, actually, because,
2: yes, especially
3: my father, I mean, this is, you know, such a, huge name and that I knew from being a child that people would say oh that looks like your father so I thought the one thing whenever I do something that vaguely reminds me of my father or my mother I say, uh-uh no way and I go the other way <laughs> so it's it's yeah it's like a big fear you know to be referenced to them directly um that I have to
2: find my own path. And is I that is it. that why you went into designing jewelry as opposed to any of the other? I suppose, but my father also
3: did jewelry. He I did. mean, he did everything. It's, <laughs> it's very hard to escape him. <laughs> yes.
2: But so is, that, it, is, that, is that what it's always felt like?
3: <laughs> yeah, but in a good way. I mean, yeah. I I never resented him for being who he was or or the you know the space that he had in in our world. I'm very. I know. I'm extremely fortunate to have been able to live you know next to him to see him create. I mean, with the one thing that always fascinated me is that he could go from, you know, maybe having lunch to working in a matter of seconds. Uh, I know that if I go from one stage to the other, I have to like, I twist around, I don't know, I do a million things before I can actually concentrate in doing design. But with him, it was like from a second to the other. He was like completely immersed in his work in a second. And if you interrupted him when he was working? I didn't interrupt him. <laughs> no, but he would, yeah, I don't think, he would have been sweet and just said, you know, shut up. <laughs> but, uh, but he was, I think also, he, he was very much taken by the innocence and the enthusiasm of children. So, and he always said that, you know, that was this kind of state that he would like to reach himself.
2: Yes, that's fantastic. And when, when with, your, with your mother... Um, when you know when you discuss your work with her, is she in, is she enthusiastic? Is she supportive?
3: Yeah, but I actually
2: don't discuss. Do you not? No. Do you not give her the odd
3: piece? Well, you know, I I told you the story, but my my three drawing that I showed my father after that, I said, okay, I'm on my own.
2: <laughs> uh, is that the is that yeah. the view you took? So you really don't discuss your work with your mum no. at all? <laughs>
3: oh, okay. I mean, she has some jewelry that apparently she enjoys, but.
2: And with both I mean, both I mean notwithstanding their particular styles, both both of your parents were pushing what art could be and should be. They're asking lots of questions. Do you have that same instinct when you're making your work?
3: Yes, well, I knew that I mean the reason why I'm designing jewelry is that jewelry is something that somebody wears. so i'm I'm catering to somebody whom I may not know. I mean, I'm catering to myself usually. I'm usually designing things that I would like to wear myself. Yep. And yet I remember many years ago, I once said I'd done a drawing with a stone that was pale blue and pale pink. And I thought that's not my style. So I said, well, once in a while I work for the blonde who's sleeping inside of me.
2: <laughs> We've all got one of those, Paloma. <laughs> um, well, we'll work towards that. But while we're doing that, could, um, could we all give a very warm thank you? Emma Baker, Ivana Gleiswick, Alamo Picasso, everybody for coming along, the whole team.
1: This was Sotheby's Talks Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 1, which features conversations with guests including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live.